Let's start with a word of prayer, and then we'll dive in. Dear Jesus, you've been awfully good to us, and we want to thank you for that this morning. You've been so patient, and you've instructed us in the words of life. And Lord, as we tarry a little longer in your presence this morning, we pray again, Lord, that you would send your Holy Spirit to take your word and to send it home to our hearts, that it may burn our heart, Lord, and set it aglow for you. Speak to us, Lord, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. You have your Bibles. Turn with me to 1 Corinthians 13th chapter. 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, those of you that have been with us for a while know that we are in the midst of a series on 1 Corinthians 13. And you know that this is the chapter on agape, uh, not just the love in, in a general sense, but specifically the word agape, which we have become familiar with. We've defined the word agape as a desire to do what is best for other people. Agape love does not, uh, does it, or agape love, agape loves, there we go, not because of what it gets or how the other person responds, but because it cares for and wants the best for others. And the best way that we can see this illustrated is in the life of Jesus. He did what he did because it was best for other people. He didn't do what he did because he was trying to get anything from us, but he merely did it because he was trying to help us to come up higher, to give us something that would aid us to become more like him and ultimately to be in the kingdom of heaven one day. We've read this statement a number of times, manuscript releases, volume 9, page 128. It says, a loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. What's the most powerful argument in the favor of the truth? A loving Lovable Christian is the most powerful. When we finish this series, this will be the one thing that you never forget. (laughs) A loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. And we've looked at this from a number, number of angles, how love breaks down the barriers that ultimately will lead to the establishment of truth. We don't merely love people just to love them just so they feel warm and fuzzy and and have a nice experience. But we love them with the goal of breaking down barriers, breaking down prejudices, so that we can bring along the truths of God's word and they'll be more readily uh, open and accepting of the truths of the Bible. But a loving, lovable Christian is the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. Signs of the Times, February 1, 1887, makes this powerful statement. Nothing will so successfully defeat the devices of Satan and his emissaries. Nothing will so build up the Redeemer's kingdom as will the love of Christ manifested by who? Manifested by who? The members of the church. So what breaks down the, the, the barriers of the enemy is the love of Christ manifested in God's members. What builds up the kingdom of God quickly is the love of Jesus manifested in the life 
of his members. Not just something merely as a theoretical thing. Not just something that, oh, well, we have the, uh, the, the people in the church that love and the people in the church that preach the truth. But God's people as a whole, winning people through this loving, loving character, lovable character that God wants to create in us That is what successfully defeats the devices of Satan and builds up the kingdom of God. And that's, I think, what each one of us want as his children. Amen? Now, as we're continuing our study together, 1 Corinthians 13, we're primarily looking at verses 4 through 7. That's where we've been spending the bulk of our time. Let's go ahead and read these verses again, and then we're going to dive into two points in our study together this morning. The Bible says, charity suffereth long and is kind, charity envieth not, charity vaunteth not itself, is not puffed up, doth doth not behave itself unseemly, seeketh not her own, is not easily provoked, thinketh no evil, rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth, beareth all things, believeth all things, hopeth all things, and the last thing is, endureth all things. As we looked at this description of charity, the word agape, we found that if we take the name charity or the word charity out and replaced it with the name Jesus, we wouldn't change the meaning of the text. Amen? Does Jesus suffer long and is kind? Does Jesus not envy, not boast? Is he humble and not proud? Of course, this is a description we found of the character of Jesus. But the more difficult thing is, can I take the name charity out and replace it with my own name? And as we found out in our study together, we found out that when Jesus comes back, the Bible tells us in 1 John, that when he appears, we shall be like him. So when Jesus comes in the clouds of heaven, 1 Corinthians 13, 4 through 7 is not just a description of Jesus, but it's going to be a description of those who will be translated. Amen? And as we look at that, I don't know about you, but I feel like I need to spend a little bit more time in my prayer closet with the Lord and say, Father, you've got to do the necessary heart surgery to make this a reality because I just don't have it in myself. Naturally speaking, this is not the type of person that I am, but with God... We know all things are possible. This morning, we're looking at the end of verse 5, where the Bible tells us that charity thinketh no what? How much evil? How much? How much is none? A little bit? No. The Bible says that charity thinketh no evil. That is an absolute. There is no evil that comes into the mind of charity. Proverbs chapter 23 and verse 7, the Bible says, for as he thinketh in his heart, so so if I think evil, according to scripture, what am I? We don't like to talk about that, do we? Makes us a little uncomfortable. And so we come up with fancy mental gymnastics to try to take our evil thoughts and to somehow minimize their evilness. But there, there's no way you can do that. We cannot use our own mind to determine what is and isn't evil. The only thing that can determine what is and is not evil is the word of God. And if God says that something is evil and we think about it, the Bible tells us that that is evil. We are evil when we do that. As a man thinketh in his heart, so is he according 
to Scripture. But the Bible tells us that charity thinketh no evil. Did Jesus think any evil? Of course he didn't. He, had the, he always had the best construction in his mind of what, what, what was right rather than meditating and thinking upon that which was wrong. We're found, we, we are told in fifth volume of the testimonies, page 310, that if the thoughts are wrong, the feelings will be wrong, and the thoughts and feelings combined make up what? What does it make up? The moral character. The moral character is made up of our thoughts and our feelings. Have you ever had that happen to you before? Where your thoughts dictated how you felt. Right? You begin to think about something that's maybe sad or maybe something that's negative, And before too long, your feelings follow right along behind that. Now, the flip side is true as well. When we think of bright and happy things, when we think of honorable things, our feelings follow right along behind that. The thoughts and the feelings combined is what makes up the moral character. And the Bible tells us that charity chooses not to think any evil. One writer put it this way, we sow our thoughts and we reap our actions. We sow our actions and we reap our habits. We sow our habits and we reap our character. We sow our characters and we reap our what? Our destiny. You see, the Bible tells us that those who are striving to be like Christ will choose to think on wholesome things. They will not think on that which is evil. In fact, it's interesting. If you do a quick little comparison, going back to Genesis chapter 6, you just hold, uh, write it down or something like that. But going back to Genesis 6, just kind of take your mind back there. Right before the flood, before God destroyed the earth with a flood, the Bible says that God looked upon the earth in Genesis 6 and verse 5. And it says, God saw the wickedness of man that it was great in the earth and every imagination of the thoughts of his heart was only what? Evil continually. So the Bible tells us that the condition of the earth before the flood is that the thoughts of man were only evil, not just evil, but they were only evil continually. Man could only think evil thoughts. And so the Bible says, as God looked at the earth before the flood, it repented God that he had created man because he had gotten to this point where he had become so wicked in his thoughts. And the Bible actually kind of fleshes it out a little bit more. As you look at verse uh, 11 and 12, uh, the Bible says in verse 11, and the earth was also corrupt before God and the earth was filled with violence. Is the earth corrupt today? Is the earth filled with violence today? Why? Because the imagination of the hearts of men are only evil continually. Now, I think if we're all going to be honest with ourselves, the problem is not just on the outside. But sometimes we bring those ways of thinking with us on the inside. And when we choose as God's people to think evil thoughts... We are bringing corruption and violence into God's church. Lord, have mercy. Amen. May God help us to control our thoughts that they might be more pure 
and holy. But I want to get more specific than this. We're kind of of talking about evil thoughts in general, uh, which is fine. But the Greek in this passage gets very specific. The, The concept of thinking no evil in the Greek, it literally means that agape does not take an inventory or keep a record of others' wrong actions. More specific, is not? So, yeah, we can talk about evilness in a general sense, thinking evil. But the more specific application of the passage is that charity does not keep an accurate record in its mind of the wrongs of others. Whether those wrongs were done to me as an individual or done in a general sense or done to somebody else that I love or whatever it may be, charity does not keep an accurate record. In another word, in other words, charity is a bad accountant. We all like good accountants, don't we? Keep an accurate check. We have a good treasurer in our church that keeps track of all of our finances, and we praise God for that. But when it comes to the wrongs of others, that's not something we want to be good at. We don't want to be known as the person who has all of the accurate accounts of the woes and wrongs that others have inflicted upon us or others. Uh, The New Living Translation puts the passage this way. It keeps no record of being wrong. Keeps no record of what? Keeps no record of being wrong. Have you ever been wronged? Are you keeping a record of that? Don't answer that question right now. You, you, you talk with the Lord about that later on today. But agape does not keep a record of that in its mind. Listen to this from the book Acts of the Apostles, page 319. It says this, Christ-like love, is that what we're looking at in 1 Corinthians 13? Christ-like love places the most favorable construction on the motives and acts of others. What does Christ-like love do? Places the most... Favorable construction on the what? Motives and acts of others. So when, when uh, somebody who has a heart of agape hears something about somebody else, the first thing that they do before they, maybe they have all of the details, but the first thing that they do is they try to put a favorable construction on the motives and acts of others. You know, this is really beautifully illustrated in the life of Jesus. Jesus lived three and a half years of his earthly ministry. Of course, he lived longer than, but the three and a half years of his earthly ministry, he went from being ridiculed, being, being looked down upon, and ultimately he was crucified, spit on, beat, you know, all of these various things. And as he's hanging there on the cross before he breathes his last breath, the most favorable construction that he could put on the situation that he was in was Father for they know not what they do. Even though he told them that he was the Messiah, even though he told them that he was going to be crucified, even though he told them all of these things multiple times, the most favorable construction under the circumstances that Jesus could put on the situation is they know not what they do. That's Christ-like love, amen? That's the loving, lovable Christian that's the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. That's the love that makes our theology 
valuable, as we've read in other places. She goes on, she says this, it does not needlessly, this is Christ-like love, does not needlessly expose their faults. It does not listen eagerly to unfavorable reports, but seeks rather to bring to mind the good qualities of others. What does it try to do? Bring into the mind the what? Good qualities. It's not looking for faults. It doesn't eagerly listen to unfavorable reports that other people might be, you know, gossiping about. But charity, agape, Christ-like love, tries to find the best in the situation rather than the worst. It thinketh no evil. The best way I can think of illustrating this is the love of a mother for her children. If you were to talk to my mom and ask her, what was Jason like as a child? You would find out, or you would think rather, after you came from that conversation, that I was the best kid in the world. That I did no wrong, I never argued, I was never mean, I never did this and I never did that. I was always happy and always kind and always compliant. That would be what you would think after you talked to your mom. But I would have to come along and give you a reality check. Because that's not reality. But a parent naturally wants to remember the good about their children and not the bad. Is that not right? Under under normal circumstances, a parent naturally wants to remember the good about their children. They want to speak about the good. They want to tell others about the good. And they tend to forget the bad over time. I literally believe that my mom has forgotten the bad things that I did as a child. Because she has spent so much time thinking about and talking about the good stuff. Right? And this is Christ-like love. This is, how, this is the mind of those who are possessed with agape, with the love of Jesus in their heart. They look for the best. They talk about the best. They're constantly trying to edify and lift other people up, even if it's forgive them for they know not what they do. Charity thinketh no evil. So I ask you a question. Do you have a person in your life that when you think of them, the first thing that comes to your mind is something negative? Pastor's asking some difficult questions this morning, isn't he? Is there somebody that comes to your mind that when you think of them, bam, the first thing that comes into your mind is something negative about that person? The mind of charity, the mind of agape, the love and the heart of Jesus, we need to come to him and say, Lord, please change that so that when I think of that person, bam, the first thing that comes into my mind is something positive. So here's an exercise. When you think of that individual, maybe they're here in the church, maybe there's somebody at work, maybe it's somebody in your Uh, uh, in your home, a family member, or just an acquaintance. But when you think of that person, what I want you to do is I want you to find out three things, write down three things about that person that you admire. Or you say, Pastor, there's nothing to admire about that person. All there are bad things about them. See, that's the problem, right? We're kind of blind when it comes to the good. Even the worst people have something that's good about them. If you look long enough and hard enough, and you maybe even have to pray and say, Lord, help me to see this, you will find something. 
And I want you to do that exercise. Take that person and think about three things that you admire about them and then choose to think on those things. Choose not to think about evil, but think about the good. And don't just stop at that one person, but there's probably a chance that you have more than one person in your life who is like that. And do that with that person as well. You know, it's, it's amazing to me how marvelous our minds are at remembering the bad about other people. You can talk to somebody, and I've talked to people before. You can talk to them, and they'll remember something that happened way back in the recesses of their mind, and they'll remember it in great detail and clarity. Have you met somebody like that before? They'll go through all of the details and all the nitty-gritty stuff, and, and as they're going through it, their emotions are starting to change because thoughts and feelings are connected together, and it makes up our moral character. And the more they talk about it, the more they get into it. And I think to myself, Lord, have mercy. They're killing themselves. We have marvelous minds when it comes to remembering the faults of other people. But then people tell me they can't memorize the Bible. You know, what I've come to believe is this. The problem isn't that we can't remember. The problem is what do we want to remember? The good Lord has given us a brain that can remember remember things. We have to make the choice, what am I going to remember? Am I going to remember the things that other people have done to me? Or am I going to choose to think on that which is good? And I've oftentimes told people that even if it takes you a month to memorize a Bible passage, you'll be better at the end of that month than you were at the beginning of that month. Amen? You have something else that you can think about in your mind that will draw you closer to God, that you can place, that you can replace when an evil thought starts coming into your mind, when an evil memory comes in there, where, where the devil tries to start getting your mind off of God and off of agape and onto the things of this world. You can call that Bible passage up into your mind and choose to think about that which is good instead of that which is bad. Charity thinketh no evil. Pray that God would give us brilliant minds to remember the good just as well, if not better, than we remember the bad. Amen? And that our memories, that we would have spiritual Alzheimer's when it comes to the faults of other people. Amen? Forget that stuff. And let's remember that. Which Listen to this. This is from Steps to Christ, page 121. We've all grown to love this little book. It says this, if we keep uppermost in the minds, in our minds, the unkind and unjust acts of others, we shall find it impossible to love them as Christ loves us. What makes it impossible for me to love people the way Jesus loved me? When I keep uppermost in my mind the what? The unjust acts, the unkind words, the un- all of that. When I keep that uppermost in my mind, it makes it impossible for me to love people as Jesus has loved me. But she goes on. She says, but, but if our thoughts dwell upon the wondrous love and pity of Christ for us, the same spirit will flow out to others. Did you catch that? It's a beautiful statement. It's not something you're forcing to happen. It's not like you're, you're, you're kind of grit and bear it and do it. No, 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 no. 
She says, as I think about the love of Jesus, as I meditate upon his love towards me, she says, it just flows out. It gushes out of my heart from me to other people. It's a natural response. You see, we love little because we're meditating a little on the love of Jesus. If we meditate more upon what Jesus has done for me and his love towards me, it will naturally flow out of my heart to other people. Charity thinketh no evil. The Bible goes on in verse 6, and it says this, Rejoiceth not in iniquity, but rejoiceth in the truth. You know, it's a strange thing that any person, God's people, would find pleasure in unrighteousness. Rejoiceth not in iniquity, the Bible says, but rejoiceth in the truth. You see, sin sin has so unbalanced our minds, it has warped our way of thinking, that we have come to the point where as humans... We find pleasure in unrighteousness instead of righteousness. Naturally, that's how we are as human beings. But we have to go through this this reprogramming of our mind so that we don't find pleasure in lawlessness, but we find pleasure in the truth. Not only in the truth in God's word, but the truth lived out in my life and other people's lives. Where we don't look at other people to try to find where they've tripped up so that we can keep a mental track of that or so that it makes me feel better than they are. But we love the truth rather than seeing unrighteousness, whether it is manifested in my life or in the life of any other person. Luke chapter 18, jot it down if you would, verse 11. Jesus gives an example of those who, or men who found pleasure in unrighteousness. He's unnamed part of a sect of religious leaders that we know to be the Pharisees. Jesus, at the end of that verse there, Luke chapter 18, verse 11, he says, this is the Pharisee talking. He said, I thank thee as he's praying to God. What a blasphemous prayer. I thank thee that I am not as other men are, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even as this publican. Sometimes I think there's this this twisted thing that happens inside of our minds spiritually. Where when we see somebody struggle in their spiritual life, that somehow we feed off of that to make us feel better that we are not as they are. And if you've ever experienced that or if you've ever seen that, I mean, it's, it's a natural thing because... As a human, it's natural anyways. It's not natural in a spiritual in a spiritual sense. But as a human, it's natural because as a human, we want to advance ourselves. So if somebody else is suffering, that must mean that I'm better. That needs to be cut out of our spiritual experience. Because charity or agape wants to see the betterment of everyone. All to advance, all to prosper. But here this publican is saying, I thank you, God, that I, or this, rather, this Pharisee is saying, I thank you, God, that I am not as this man right here, this terrible man who's done these terrible things. And he goes on and he, after that, and he lists all the good things that he has done. Does your prayer life look like that sometimes? Thank you, Lord, I don't have that problem. Thank you, Lord, I'm not like that person. 
you know what? Somebody across the aisle might be praying the same prayer about you. Right? You know, what we really want people to say is, Lord, help me to love people like that person loved people. Help me to show the love of Jesus like that person shows the love of Jesus. Lord, thank you for putting this person in my life because they have showed me who you are more clearly. Don't you think those are better prayers to pray? Lord, help me to come up to that standard. Help me to become more like that. Help me to find pleasure in the truth manifested rather than in acts of unrighteousness. You know, when we point out the sins of others or find any measure of pleasure in them, what we're really doing is we're kind of following not the character of Christ, but what we're actually doing is we're following the character of Satan, right? The Bible refers to him as the accuser of the brethren. What is he doing? He's accusing us of our what? He's looking, he's observing, he's studying, he's watching because he wants to see all of the bad things that you've done so he can throw it in the face of God. And he can say, see, look, here's the evidence. These people who say they're Christians, these people who say they're Seventh-day Adventists, look at this. Look at their lives. He's the accuser of the brethren who's pointing out the faults of, of God's children to God. We don't want to follow that example, do we? We don't want to have that character. We want to have the character of Jesus who is looking for that which is good rather than that which is bad. One translation renders this Bible verse, verse 6, that love is never glad when others go wrong. I like that. Love is never glad when others go wrong. Diana had received a notification that she would be receiving a new patient. This new patient's name was Corky. She was being transferred to Diana's section. The note read that Corky was non-compliant, combative, maladjusted, unmanageable, and terminal. Sounds like your dream patient, doesn't it? She had cancer that had gone untreated for quite some time and was in a terrible case. The first visit that Diana had, she went to the home of Corky's address. She met a man, his name was Mike. Mike invited Diana to come in. He showed her around the house. It was kind of a, a bit of a construction site. He was remodeling the house for Corky's soon arrival. He had bought the house, he told Diana, that he had bought the house just for Corky because it was right next to the ocean. And Corky had always wanted to live next to the ocean. So he bought this house for her. Corky turned out to be just as difficult as her history suggested that she was. Under her arm, she had a, a cantaloupe-sized black crater that just oozed this nasty liquid that caused her terrible pain. It had to be packed and repacked multiple times a day. It was just a terrible situation that she was in, and she was definitely an uncooperative person. Twice daily, the nurses came in and out of this home to help with various tasks, but Mike was there around the clock, day in, day out, caring for, taking care, and meeting all of the needs of Corky. Many times... Unusually, or it was, unu- uh, it was usual, that he would receive abusive swearing as his reward 
for his acts of tenderness for Corky. Diana suggested that Corky be placed in a care facility. She had such tremendous needs that it was very difficult to take care of her in the house. And Mike was getting worn out. Mike said, listen, she's a very difficult person to deal with, and I'm the only one that can deal with her. If I don't, you know, if they put her in a facility, they're just going to kick her out again. Finally, the day came. Diana and Mike were standing around Corky's bed, and they watched her chest rise and fall for the last time. And the act, or the, the, the expression of pain on her face was no longer there. She laid there restfully without any pain. The cancer had taken her life. Diana looked over at Mike, and this is what she said. He stared at her silently, tears running down his cheeks and dripping from his chin. His suffering affected me more deeply than Corky's death. Choking back sobs, I mumbled some sort of condolence and finished by saying that he had done more than most husbands would have done under the circumstances, that she could not have doubted his love. Husband? He looked at me sharply. I'm not her husband. I hardly knew her. Seeing the startled expression in her face, he continued, She lived on the streets. That's where I found her. She didn't have anyone who cared about her. I knew she was dying, and I bought this place so that she'd have somewhere to go. If I hadn't taken care of her, who would have? She had no one else. Diana said, Mike was standing there, but I saw the face of Jesus. What a powerful story. You know, as human beings, we don't naturally respond in this type of way because we're more concerned oftentimes about ourselves than we are about the comfort and well-being of others. And there are corkies all around us. And the world is looking to see what are God's people going to do with these corkies. And when God's people treat them the way Mike treated Corky, that is a witness that is beyond what any Bible prophecy seminar can do. So I think about the story. The only way that Mike could have done what he did is by thinking. You think Mike would have done what he did if he was thinking evil thoughts about Corky? Here she is, this bum on the streets. She's dying of cancer. He could have come up with any number of reasons why she was in the condition that she was in. Her combativeness, her lifestyle, her attitude. He could have come up with all kinds of reasons. He could have thought of all of those evil things. But would that have done any good for Corky? But he chose to suppress the worldly way of thinking about that situation, and he chose to think on holy and pure thoughts. And that triggered a Christ-like response that was manifested in this beautiful act and expression of love by one human being to another.
And I want to tell you something this morning. I believe with all my heart that these types of stories should be commonplace in God's church. Oftentimes, people on the outside of our church do a better job at loving people than we do on the inside. But that can change, amen? Because we serve a creator God who can recreate our hearts from a stony heart to a heart of flesh. I don't know about you, but I want to be that loving, lovable Christian. That's the most powerful argument in favor of the truth. Amen? Amen? Is that that what you want? Let's pray about that. Father in heaven, Lord, we are thankful that you are calling us a little bit higher. Lord, we're not satisfied with where we are at. We don't want to stay here and stagnate. We don't want to become enamored with where we have come from. But Lord, we want to keep our gaze looking up and look at what is possible through the power of Jesus. Father, we pray that you would continue this heart surgery in our lives, that you would mold us and shape us and change us, that we would wrestle with you, Lord, in our prayer closets, that we would, that we would study and observe the character of Jesus so much so that it just flows out of us and affect the lives of those around us. Oh, dear Jesus, we pray that you would do this work for we cannot do it on our own. Grant us this gift, Lord, we pray. And keep us faithful to you, we ask. In Jesus' name, amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse, a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www dot audioverse dot org